everyone, before you get started on this episode, I just want to let everybody know that I have renamed the show Historically Haunted, and I also changed up my formula from the episode. So what you're about to listen to is an older version of the show. The new show is a lot better. I hope you guys stick around to listen to the much newer episodes that started at episode 18. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm now at Historically Haunted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you guys want to email me any personal paranormal experiences or just say hi, you can email me now at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. And I have my links to all my new stuff down below. So I hope you guys enjoy and I hope you guys stick around for the newer stuff. All right, let's roll that old tape. everyone and welcome to my second episode of my podcast History and Mystery. I hope you have all had a great week. I'm back today with the story of Fort William Henry. Today it is a museum that was rebuilt using the original plans on the original foundation. It was a fort that dated back all the way to the 1750s. It has seen many battles. When you think of the suffering and the energy that has filled the grounds, it is no wonder to think this place is haunted. Today they even do ghost tours. Now, before I get into my monster of the week, I wanted to acknowledge that I did make a mistake on a date in the last podcast. The Black Dog of Hanging Hills was spotted by WHC PyCon in the 1890s, not the 1990s. My bad. Uh, I will continue to make mistakes uh, because I'm only human, but that's okay. Uh, next time, I, if I catch a mistake or you guys catch a mistake, I'll always make sure to correct it in the next episode. The big news of this episode is that I am now on Podbean and Stitcher and also iTunes. So I'm still waiting for Spotify, but I haven't heard back from them just yet. So you can add me at History and Mystery on those handles. And of course, don't forget my email address, which is historyandmystery.13 at gmail.com. I would love to get some feedback, suggestions, personal stories, or if you want to just say hello. I also now have a Facebook page and also a Facebook group that is the same name as this podcast, History and Mystery. The group is pretty easy. You just have to answer a question and the question is, are you subscribed to the History and Mystery podcast? And you just type in yes and I'll add you to the group. The group is going to be a very low PG rating and I want it to be family friendly. So there's going to be some rules on there. Mostly no politics, no name calling, no bullying and always be kind to everyone on the uh, Facebook group for sure. I also have a few downloads on Podbean, which I think is great. Thank you guys all so much. And I hope you will continue to be listening to my show. So go ahead and give me a subscription or a like and a follow. And I hope to be bringing you a lot more content soon. All right, that's enough about my updates. And now I'm going to be talking about our monster of the week. And this week it is a specter moose. That's right, I said Spectre Moose, and he is our monster of the week. Though I don't know if this one technically should be called a monster because it sounds beautiful to me. This Spectre Moose has been seen for hundreds of years in the United States of America in the state of Maine near Lobster Lake. This moose has been said to be a giant, weighing in at almost 
2,500 pounds. But it's not just the size that has people trying to find it. The color of this moose is pure white, hence the name Spectre Moose. He stands 10 feet tall, and his antlers are said to be having the wingspan of 10 feet. Keep in mind that an average moose weighs at only 990 pounds and is only about 6 feet tall. And the antlers on a normal moose are only about 6 feet wide. This specter moose has even been given a nickname, and they call him Old Moxie. There is even a book written about him called Hunting Old Moxie, the Largely True History of the Specter Moose of Lobster Lake, Maine. It is written by Al McCod. The first documented sighting of this amazing animal was in 1891 by a hunting guide named Clarence Duffy. He was so scared by the size of the moose, he did not want to get close enough to take a shot at it. And when he went into town and told everyone what he had seen, the locals laughed at him. However, two months later, a lumberjack named John Ross was doing work in the forests around Lobster Lake when he too saw the moose. That in turn gave more credit to Duffy's story. Later that year, a New York hunter saw it and fired several slugs at it with no effect, but it did make the moose very angry who charged the hunter and he had to flee for his life. The man had to hide in a bear cave for about an hour until the moose finally went away. Many other hunters over time have taken shots at this moose just to have it come after them and never seem to die. Sightings of this moose have been made in spurts over a course of a hundred years. Hunters are still out there looking for this legendary creature today. I, for one, hope they never find it and actually kill it. I think they should just leave it alone. If it's real, it has enough to deal with than hunters attacking it from time to time. However, I do hope somebody someday gets a picture of it because that would be worth a million. The last sighting of this moose was made in the early 1990s. So what do you think of the legend? Is it real? Is it a ghost moose? Could it be a spirit guide of the land? Either way, I think the Spectre Moose is pretty cool. The United States of America in 1750 was an extremely dangerous and confusing time and place. America had not yet fought for its independence, taxes were skyrocketing, and there was a constant struggle of keeping the French from trying to overtake land that was thought to be owned by the British. Today, Fort William Henry is located on Lake George in upstate New York. It is a museum that is open daily for tours from 9.30 to 6 o'clock. They do self-guided tours as well as group tours and school tours. They also do an 18th century military demonstration a couple times a year. They also do what they call mini-talks that is scheduled three times a day. It is described as a chance to meet with a historian or a guide to discuss history of the fort and show individual artifacts found within the museum when it was being excavated. And last but certainly not least, like I said at the top of the show, they do ghost tours. And the description I'm about to quote, I'm about to read, is quoted straight from their website. The area surrounding Fort William Henry has been the scene of countless battles, terrible disease, and harsh climate. With hundreds of years of history, there are bound to be some ghost stories. Join us for a tour of ghostly places. See firsthand the equipment used by investigators on their quest for research of the paranormal activity. Hear the stories that have been handed down over the years, as well as the personal experiences for those leading the tour. This tour requires walking, stairs, and dark places. The website that you can find all the main history and tour guide information is fortwilliamhenrymuseum.com. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a spooky good time to me. 
Now it's time for the history to come forth so the ghost can fully materialize. Today, Albany, New York is the capital of the state of New York, but in 1750, it was nothing but harsh wilderness that needed to be protected from the French, who were starting to make claims of English land. The area that was once just rough wilderness quickly became known as the Great Carrying Place, located on the Hudson River. It became Fort Edward. After the founding of Fort Edward, it became the third largest settlement in North America. At this time, the French settled in a territory just north of the St. Lawrence River that would later become West Pennsylvania and also Ohio. With tensions running high, it was almost the perfect storm for a war to break out amongst these two great powers. When the French moved to the southern end of Lake Camplan in 1755, they began work on a new fort called Fort Carillon. The British had to respond to protect its colonies, so they sent William Johnson, to the southern end of what was then known as Lac du Saint Sacrament. He later renamed Lake George. He began work on a new fort immediately, for it was necessary to protect the waterways of New York City. He designed the fort in the Vauban style that was made of big log facings, making the walls 30 feet thick. He also added a dry moat around three sides of the fort, with the fourth being a big hill sloping down toward the lake. There was also a camp that was located just east of the fort. The fort was large enough to house between 400 and 500 men. You would think he named it after himself, but he didn't. He actually named the fort Fort William Henry after the royal grandsons to the king. However, there was not much time to celebrate because war was about to start. The French and Indian War lasted from 1755 to 1763. In July of 1757, the French started gathering troops and getting ready for an attack on Fort William Henry. The man who was in command of the British troops was named Lieutenant Colonel George Monroe. He sent word of the French getting ready to attack and brought what they called... Okay, so I'm going to pause for a second here. So what I was finding in my research is the British Army at this time, I don't know if they still call it, but people who were trained and are in the British Army or even the French Army were called regulars. And then there was the militia that was an like its own band of uh, people, normal people that just protected like the cities and towns. And they came uh, with minimal training, but they were ready to defend uh, whichever side they were on. So anyway, the lieutenant sent word of the French getting ready to attack and brought regulars and militia to the fort and began preparing for battle. The total number of the British troops at the fort w was just 2,300 by the end of it after everybody arrived. The French, on the other hand, were way more prepared to defeat the fort. The French army uh, group that attacked the fort was under command of General Louis Joseph de Montreclam, and his army was much bigger. He had 3,000 French regulars, 3,000 militia, and approximately 2,000 Native Americans just in his army alone. Just to recap, that means the French had a total number of probably just over 8,000, and the British, all inside one fort, only had 2,300 total troops. So it's not looking very good for the British. Within hours from the start of the battle, beginning on August 3rd, 1757, the French surrounded the fort and cut off the military access road leading to Fort Edward in a matter of hours. The battle rained on 
for six days. The French moved their men along the trenches and fired heavy artillery at the fort. The British were outmanned and outgunned from the beginning. And even though they were crumbling, the general for the British army named General Webb refused to send reinforcements. And after the six-day bloody battle, Lieutenant Moreau surrendered on August 9th, 1757. The French allowed the British to return to Fort Edward after the surrender, and they were saying that they could go home with full honors, but the French forces did not do a very good job of explaining this to the Indian people that they had fighting for them. The tribes felt that the French had cheated them for their help because the French had promised them war payment for helping them in this attack. And when the French didn't pay up, they went into the fort and to the camp nearby as the British troops were starting to evacuate and killed the remaining survivors. They stole clothing off of some of the soldiers' backs and stole all of their belongings and sent the retreating men into the woods in fear for their lives. In total, it is estimated that 200 people were killed in just the massacre. Historians argue about the estimates, and every website I looked at had a different number, but the one that kept popping up as a total for the battle, the massacre, and then illnesses that followed the, the battle was around 1,500 people. Now, this part kind of makes me think of a creepy horror movie. The scattered survivors started showing up at Fort Edward a few days after the attack in, like, really sporadic ways, and they were all bloody and beat up. Uh, that, to me, just creeps me out. Can you imagine that? Back in colonial times before cell phones when you didn't know what was going on and then all of a sudden these people just start showing up saying that they all almost got killed because of this big battle that happened a couple of miles away and you didn't even know it was really going on. That's just crazy to me. Now, after the massacre, the Indian tribes, for whatever reason, decided that they did not want to go back to the fort and the French didn't have enough um, well-rested men left to hold the fort if the British came back for a counterattack from Fort Edward, which was a much bigger establishment. So due to this, the French uh, decided to strip the fort of anything valuable and burn the entire fort as they left. The fort remained untouched until 1950 when a group of local businessmen bought the historic site to save it from development. The site has been excavated, excavated, excavated? No, excavated, sorry. It has been excavated and rebuilt using the original plans on the original foundation. They even built a hotel and a conference center right next door to the fort. This is a resort now that, along with its hotels and pools, hosts meetings, weddings, restaurants, and it has a couple of gift shops. But with all that great history and tragedy that has struck at this fort and the surrounding area, it's no wonder to think this place would be full of ghosts. My gosh, does this place have a ton of ghost stories. I was super excited. It's like hitting the paranormal mother load with this one. It sounds like to me that this place has it all. It's got cold spots, shadow people, moving objects to slamming doors to cries in the middle of the night for help. When you look outside, there's no one there. It also has a lot of residual haunting as well. In October of 2016, it even made CBS's Most Haunted Places in America list, and it was number 16 out of 35. 
According to local legend, the most well-known ghost of Fort William Henry is actually someone who died before the fort was even built. It was an Indian chief, and his name was Taco Lixis. He was killed by hanging, and the tree he was hung on is still there to this day, and it is said that he is seen standing around his tree, and he also shows up as a white glowing mist in the area and around the fort's main entrance. A lot of the other activity outside and around the top of the fort is all seems to be residual hauntings. Now, residual hauntings seem to be a place in time that is replaying itself over and over again. And for whatever reason, if you're there on maybe an anniversary or just there at a, a perfect time for energy to bring spirits forward, I think it just replays and then you see it. And what most people explain when they talk about residual hauntings is they'll see something happening and then it'll just kind of fade away. A lot of the other residual hauntings in the area tend to be from British soldiers who are still acting as if they are performing uh, checks on the fort. They're seen walking on the top of the fort as if they're still playing out their duties. There's even one that's a very disturbing and sad claim uh, that if you go into one of the inter inner rooms uh, near what they call the dungeon and the uh, base of the fort, which was the field hospital at the time of the fort when it was in its, you know, heyday, um, they say that you can see a soldier who's moaning in pain and he looks like he's mortally wounded and then he just kind of fades away into nothing in front of the guest's eyes. Phantom footsteps are also heard. If you're on the bottom level, it's as if someone is patrolling on the top level above you. Also, there is a ghost that is known as the limper, apparently, because he sounds like he has uneven footsteps. And there was a skeleton that was unearthed by archaeologists at the time that they were excavating in the 1950s. And apparently the ghost was someone who was missing a leg, uh, probably amputated at that time during the battle, maybe, or even beforehand. They're not sure. But they seem to think that the, um, the limper is probably that skeleton they unearthed. There's also a ghost called the slammer who, you know, likes to slam doors. But he doesn't just slam them like from behind you. He likes to slam them in people's faces, apparently. Apparently, this happens to museum guides quite frequently. They'll be in the middle of a tour talking and then all of a sudden the door they were about to enter just slams in front of their face. Orbs and flashing lights are seen on the property as well, inside and outside. There is a disembodied voice that apparently asks for the guests to leave the powdered magazine behind, which is weird because they usually don't have one in their hands. <laughs> the only thing I could think of them actually asking that for is the reenactors that dress up and play um, as in the period pieces that they're in. So I could see that happening to them, but not so much like a normal tour guide or tour guest. This fort has even been investigated by the TV show Ghost Hunters. The next thing I started doing for research of Fort William Henry's ghosts is I started finding actual uh, people who would write in a comment about a personal experience. So the next section is from hauntedplaces.org. The first experience of a personal paranormal experience is from the user that she, or he, I think it was a girl, she named, uh, her username was T, and it was posted on October 25th, 2014. She said, and I quote, I was a waitress at the Lookout Cafe about 10 years ago. I used to work double shift because the money was so good. Late one night, I was leaving work while alone 
and I was walking between the fort and hotel to my car on the far end of the parking lot. During my walk, I reached down and grabbed my tips out of my apron to count them, and I felt something was looking at me. I look up and see a man in a red uniform sitting on a horse about 30 feet from me. I took off running, filled with fear. When I turned around and looked back, it was gone. I made it to my car crying and told the chef on duty I was also leaving. I quit the next day and never have been back. It's too bad that she quit her job because of that. That's kind of a bummer. The next one I found was from a person named Emily, and she posted on July 5th, 2015. She said, and I quote, I was there one night for one of the ghost tours a few days before Halloween, and we were in the old bakery, and all of a sudden I smelt cinnamon buns, and the tour guide said sometimes people come down here and smell the smell of cinnamon buns. So I thought that was super creepy, and another experience was in the same ghost tour and the same tour guides turned off the lights so we could take some photos and I caught a picture of an orb slash light line in the middle of the picture and the weird part was is that there was no one around me taking photos so I showed it to the tour guide and he said someone also took a picture and they had the same light line in the middle of their screen as well just like my picture. I personally have a hard time with orbs, but I know that some of them are legitimate, but a lot of them, from my experience, are just um, light coming in from a different window or even dust or bugs. But when it's something that you were in the same location, facing the same way, and other people got something like that in the same location, I tend to believe it and think it's more of a legitimate orb. Now, the hotel that is next to the fort also has claims of hauntings. Guests who have stayed in the hotel claim of hearing cries for help in the middle of the night outside their doors, and when they go out in the hall to check, there is no one there. Guests have also claims to feel cold spots in the lobby, and the feeling of sadness is also felt with no explanation or reason. They'll suddenly be filled with this emotion. Fire alarms are also said to go off in rooms that no one is in and for no reason at all. I found the part about the fire alarms um, kind of interesting because I was looking on Travelocity.com uh, for haunted reviews and I came across this lady who was mostly bad-mouthing the hotel, but she had a few paranormal um, sounding reasons that she was upset at the place and she was very upset at the staff too, but I'm not going to get into that. Just to let everyone know, the hotel uh, won an award in 2018 for the Best of Lake George Hotel Award. So I am no way trying to bash this hotel, never been, but she said that uh, she when they first came into the first room that they were supposed to have, she said the microwave was running and there was no one inside the room at all. And then in the middle of the night when her family was sleeping, a fire alarm kept going off in her room and only her room, uh, making her family have to move to a different one in the middle of the night, which is why she was so upset. When I was reading that review, I didn't know that the fire alarms was kind of a normal occurrence in this uh, hotel until I got to more of the paranormal aspects of the hotel. So you never know, that could have been a paranormal experience as well. I mentioned that Ghost Hunters, um, the TV show Ghost Hunters has gone to the fort. When they went, they didn't seem to catch very much stuff, but they did catch an actual like footsteps walking above them in this one location. I think it was the gift shop and you could hear somebody walking above them. And of course, when they got up to the top floor to check, no one was there. Also, the, the thing that I found most interesting about that was there's like a wall of glass um, that have mannequins 
and things on the other side, but it's locked so nobody could get in there. And from when they were underneath, it sounded as if the footsteps were coming from the other side of the glass case, which I think that is pretty creepy, if you ask me. The claims from the fort uh, workers was things in the gift shop move on their own, disembodied footsteps, again, cold spots, and apparently bottles inside the old dungeon area uh, move on their own. They're just props, obviously, set up, but they would the claim was that the tour groups would be done for the night. They'd lock up the owners and everything. They'd lock it up and then they'd come back and things will always be moved around after they were gone. So that is all I have for the hauntings of this historical location. I could have found a lot more, but I didn't want it to run over too long. I recommend going and seeing if you can go to one of their ghost tours sometime. I think that would be a lot of fun. It's definitely on my top 10 places to visit right now. Thank you guys all so much for listening to my podcast in episode number two. I hope you've all enjoyed it and learned something and had some fun along the way. So like I said at the top of the show, I am now on Facebook at History and Mystery. I have a page and I also have a group page as well, which is again, History and Mystery. I also have a email address that is historyandmystery.13 at gmail.com. Go ahead and leave some comments and reviews in the comment section below. I would really appreciate it. The websites I found all of my information was from fortwilliamhenry.com, fortwilliamhenrymuseum.com, where you can find everything about ticket prices to hours to tours. I also got a lot of my information from hauntedhovel.com and hauntedplaces.org. Thank you guys all so much again. This has been so much fun. I hope you guys all have a great week and I will be back next week with more haunted locations. See you later.